purposefully and mindfully create space here to be aware of the Holy Spirit, to listen, to understand that we are known by God as we seek to know God in this space. So let me pray as we begin our time into the Word. God, we are called to be people of faith in the midst of the world. And so we mix our worship and our work, our faith and our life. We gather here as people who live in the world, and yet we gather as people who have been called to live with allegiance to the kingdom of God. We admit to you our dry and anxious, confused and fearful thoughts. We confess our anxiety and our worry. But you are God, and you have not left us alone. You have called us together to be part of a community, to order our allegiances and affections according to your kingdom. In this time together, Abba, Father, mature our hearts, our minds, allowing us to see deeper, living more fully, and helping us to live in a world while not being of it. We ask and worship in the name of our Creator and our Savior and our Holy Spirit, the breath of life. Amen. My daddy's family all hail from in and around Hope, Arkansas. You don't have to guess what Hope, Arkansas is famous for. Uh, Before producing a president and another presidential candidate, Hope was known as the watermelon capital of the world, where that for a long time they had grown the world's largest watermelon. Growing up in Austin, whenever we would have family come and visit us from Hope, you could count on it that their trunk would be full of watermelons. My dad would tell us stories of how he, as a boy, um, often made money picking watermelons in the patch. And I asked my Aunt Alice one time, I said, you must have been a really good, I was a kid, I said, you must have been really good at spitting watermelon seeds when you were a little girl with all those watermelons. She said, honey... We had so many watermelons, we didn't even eat the seeds. So hope was where watermelons come from. And then I stumbled upon this picture one day on the internet. Have y'all seen this? So apparently you can grow a square watermelon. And some creative marketer in Japan came up with the idea of how do we take these ungainly, often mismatched-sized melons, and produce them for general consumption and marketing. And so they figured a way to drop a seed into a glass jar, and then the watermelon would conform to the container, and then they break the glass, and you have this square watermelon. Here's the problem with it. In order to get it where it looks good, you have to harvest it, before it's ripe. So they're actually inedible. They look great, 
but their only value is for ornamentation. And they cost three times as much as a normal watermelon on top of it. Now, that's crazy, right? Why would anybody pay three times the amount for a square watermelon that they can't even eat? But apparently it's a thing that that happens. Sometimes I, I feel like our lives are likewise being squeezed. We're being hemmed in all around and forced to conform by sometimes violent, sometimes more subtle forces to be conformed into something to be packaged, sold, looked at, traded, but ultimately are of no value. We offer no nurturing, no nutrition, no flavor. We just all are the same on the outside. We're not alone in that. This, these kinds of pressures have been around since mankind has been around. As we look at our text this morning, we're going to see this happen. Pray with me as we start into this. Father, open our eyes to your word as we read it, as we meditate on it, and as we let it do its work in us and through us, among us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Alex said, we're really glad you're here. My name is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here at Grace. We're really glad if you're watching on Facebook Live or you're listening to the podcast. Um, and as we enter into the start, kind of the start of the holiday season, right? I mean, Thanksgiving's coming up this week, and then it just rolls, just rolls. So my hope, my prayer is that today, this text will encourage you as you go into this time where all the forces of the world are going to be very evident working on us. <clears throat> We're reading from Isaiah chapter 36. We're starting with verses 1 through 3, chapter 36. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, King Sennacherib of Assyria marched up against all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. <clears throat> the king of Assyria sent his chief advisor from Lachish to King Hezekiah in Jerusalem along with a large army. The chief advisor stood at the conduit of the upper pool, which is located on the road to the field where they wash and dry cloth. Eliakim, the son of Hil Hilkiah, the palace supervisor, accompanied by Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the secretary, went out to meet him. Now, let's stop here for a minute and consider who we're talking about. King Hezekiah is an interesting figure in the Bible. There is more extra-biblical evidence as to King Hezekiah's reign than just about any other Old Testament figure. That extra-biblical means that not only do we have the biblical testimony, but we have testimony of all kinds. Donnie, if you could put that coin up there. There's archaeological evidence that commends and verifies the biblical account of who Hezekiah was, what he was doing, and where he was doing it. His reign was about 715 to 686 um, BC. He was considered a very righteous king. He was, he was one who reinstituted some of the practices in the temple. 
He had witnessed the destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians before Sennacherib became king. And he was king of Judah, obviously, during this siege with that. Isaiah and Micah prophesied during his reign. And his reign, as I said, is one of the best documented that we have with extra-biblical material. So this is a very real thing that is happening in a very real place at a very real time. But let's continue. We jump up to verse 13, Isaiah 36. The chief advisor then stood there and called out loudly in the Judahite dialect, Listen to the message of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Don't let Hezekiah mislead you, for he is not able to rescue you. Don't let Hezekiah talk you into trusting the Lord by saying, The Lord will certainly rescue us. This city will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah, for this is what the king of Assyria says. Send me a token of your submission and surrender to me. Then each of you may eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land just like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Hezekiah is misleading you when he says, the Lord will rescue us. Has any of the gods of the nations rescued his land from the power of the king of Assyria? Where were the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Separvim? Indeed, did any gods rescue Samaria from my power? Who among all gods of these lands has rescued their lands from my power? So how can the Lord rescue Jerusalem from my power? Let's pause here for a minute. Very few of us have been in a city that's been laid siege by a foreign army. That does not mean that we are not likewise threatened and assailed on a regular basis. Violence, the direct threat to do something or else have harm inflicted upon you, may not be your daily experience. However, violence in many more subtle forms. The violence that comes along and says, hey, just give in to this so that you can be okay. That, that threat of having to make compromises to hold on to what little we have. The slimy threats offered through greasy smiles that act like they're doing you a favor. They surround us. Threat, bribe, the oldest manipulations in the book, the oldest temptation, echoes here of the snake in the garden. God can't do what God has promised. God is impotent in this situation. God is a liar. God doesn't care. God is for the other guy, but not for you. Is God even real? These accusations, these threats, hammer us in a myriad way, come through advertising, through obligations, 
through conversations, through systems, they surround us. They tell us that you have to give in to the powerful if you're going to hold on to that little that you have, that you just have to go along to get along. It won't be too bad. It won't hurt too much. The best you can do to hope is to get a truce, a kind of armistice, while what we really need is shalom. The shalom that comes with the kingdom of God. You see, God gives without restraint, without qualification. In direct contradiction to the threat and bribe of the violence of the world, God offers without requiring anything back. God says, all you who are weary, come. All you who are hungry, come and eat. All you who are thirsty, I have living water. And these are given without prerequisite and without obligation. Friends, it's a way of considering and thinking that is so foreign to us that we can hear the words our entire lifetime and not grasp their meaning. As I was preparing the text and as the team was working on it, as I was writing my notes, I'm writing the words and I'm going, do I, do I believe this? Is this... Is this true for me? Do I really believe that God has so unconditionally loved me and loves me that there's not a, even a taint of threat? There's not even an iota of bribe in it. And if I believe it, Am I acting on it? Am I living that way? Or am I still striving to perform? Am I still under the weight of shame? Do I constantly carry around the burdens of regret? Am I just set to that hair trigger to expect punishment? To expect that when I mess up, I'm going to be hammered for it? How do I live my life? Because that's not shalom. That's not the shalom that we're going to see as promised in this text. Well, let's keep going and see what Hezekiah's response is to the threat. It said, when Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, went to the Lord's temple. Eliakim, the palace supervisor, Shebna, the scribe, and the leading priest, clothed in sackcloth, sent this message to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz. This is what Hezekiah says. This is a day of distress, insults, and humiliation. As when a baby is ready to leave the birth canal, but the mother lacks the strength to push it through. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear all these things. The chief advisor has spoken on behalf of his master, the king of Assyria, who sent him to taunt the living God. So when the Lord your God hears, perhaps he will punish him for the things he has said. So pray for this remnant that remains. Hezekiah's response gives us the first thing we need to see in how to respond when these threats overwhelm us. 
Hezekiah turns himself, he turns his attention to God. Now in this system, he's going through the prophet. The prophet, this was, this was something that was done at the time. It's, it's right in the context of the society. He goes to the prophet, he asks the prophet to pray. He goes in humility, tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth. He recognizes that he is not going to save himself. He recognizes that he has stood up. He's told the people, remember? He's told the people the Lord will deliver us. He has spoken boldly. But he realizes that it's not just a matter of his personal faith that's going to do this. That God is going to have to intervene. So he goes to the prophet to say, please pray to God that this would be true. This humility doesn't deny the tenuousness of the situation. Hezekiah realizes he's in bad shape. This doesn't look good. Faith doesn't look at the world through rose-colored glasses and just deny the reality of the situations that we face, of the troubles and temptations. It recognizes them. But with humility, it, instead of giving in to them or denying them, it turns to the source of salvation. Well, Isaiah goes on. He writes, When King Hezekiah's servant came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Tell your master this. This is what the Lord has said. Don't be afraid because of the things you have heard. These insults the king of Assyria's servants have hurled against me. Look, I will take control of his mind. He will receive a report and return to his own land. I will cut him down with a sword in his own land. All of which, by the way, happened. Sennacherib did leave, did return to his homeland, was offering offerings in one of the pagan temples where he worshipped and was slaughtered by his own staff in that time. But where did Isaiah get this response? Did it just happen in the moment? Did Isaiah's response to faithfully declare that Hezekiah would be delivered, that the people would be delivered, and that Sennacherib would go? Did it just come to him in the instant? No, it didn't. This response was the fruit of work, of an experience that Isaiah had had long before. And that's why we go back to Isaiah 2. If we look at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry, of his prophetic ministry, he received a message that so formed his imagination that everything that was to come was filtered through that. We just dedicated William and Caroline. What was the vision y'all had, Pete and Martha, for your grandchildren in that moment? What do you see? You see them growing in godliness. You see them responding to the Holy Spirit. You see that thing forming in them, right? That's the lens you're going to look at their life through. Isaiah had this vision birthed in him that he started to, to understand all of reality through that. You see, if we wait until the moment, it, it's great. There's some of the DTS students from Ozark here um, this week. When we sat around the campfire and we talked about how 
what we're doing is, it's not the question is not what would Jesus do, it's how did Jesus become the person that he became? What were the things that formed Jesus' imagination? What are the things that form our imagination? Because that's where our responses are going to come from. In the moment of attack, in the moment of threat, how we respond is actually going to be formed way before that moment. By the vision that we get, the understanding that we come to about the kingdom of God. Here's the vision that Isaiah had. He said, here is the message about Judah and Jerusalem that was revealed to Isaiah, son of Amoz. In the future, the mountains of the Lord's temple will endure as the most important of mountains and will be the most prominent of the hills. All the nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the Lord's mountain to the temple of, God, of the God of Jacob so he can teach us his requirements and we can follow his standards. For Zion will be the center of moral instruction. The Lord's message will issue from Jerusalem. He will judge disputes between nations. He will settle cases for many people. They will beat their plows, their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up the sword against the other nations. They will no longer train for war. War won't even be considered an option. Violence, threat, bribe will be done away with. Not even considered as an option. This was the imagination that soaked Isaiah's thoughts and responses, his words and his actions. But they weren't just for Isaiah. They are for us as well. Now something else, I, I told you earlier that Hezekiah's reign is well documented by other or extra biblical sources. But there's another thing. There was an interesting history book written a while back called What If? And the historian, the author, went to a number of prominent historians and he said, okay, we're going to take some major events in human history and consider if they had gone the other way, right? I mean, this is popular, right? We've all read books like this. You know, what are the Nazis in one World War II? Stuff like that, right? And one of the things was, what if Sennacherib here had overtaken Jerusalem? What would have happened if the Assyrians had conquered Hezekiah? And the author's summation of it was, is that it would have ended monotheism as we know it. That this would have snuffed out the ideas, the experiences that went on to form the basis, not just for Judaism, but also for Islam and Christianity. Is that he said that this battle, this this was so intense. The northern kingdom, you got to remember, the northern kingdom has been destroyed. It's never going to come back at this point. All the other towns of Judah have already been captured. You have this tiny, little, ragtag band in Jerusalem who are holding on to the... To the the stories and the principles and the encounters with Yahweh 
the living God. And if at this moment they had been overturned, this one historian's verdict is that also conquered would have been any idea, any testimony of the living God. Now, we can debate that all day. But suffice it to say that this is a major turning point. And the Assyrians were defeated. Historians are conflicted on what actually happened. The Bible says that the Spirit came in and wiped out the army. Secular historians have said that there's evidence there that the the army was there and that something happened. One of their conjectures is that they were overcome by diseased field mice. And the field mice chewed through all their bowstrings and infected the entire army. But however it happened, Jerusalem was delivered. And the testimony of that delivery so filled the people's imagination that literally they saw their end. They understood their doom. They knew that if they went down, that was it. No more Israel. No more worship of Yahweh. That they would be destroyed. And they saw the army there one night and the next day they're gone. And that testimony endures even today for us. So the question becomes, when we are surrounded, and again, it may feel like an army coming at us, or it may feel like a square glass jar that we are being forced to grow in, squeezed on every side, told, hey, it won't be that bad. Just give in. It'll be okay. Sold our own slavery and told to feel good about it. Friends, that is not shalom. That is not the kingdom of God. That is not what the testimony of Isaiah and Hezekiah offers to us. It offers us so much more. Not ease, not comfort necessarily. Not a promise that everything's going to be all right. Just don't worry. Not that, not, not those false promises, but the deep promises the deep promises that come from Scripture, the deep promises that are experienced in community, that is what is promised to us. Shalom, true, everlasting, eternal, and given without cost, without threat, and without bribe. Like I said, it's hard for us to imagine at times what life would be like without that, though, isn't it? I mean, honestly, it's hard to imagine what it would be like to live in a world where it's not just based on my performance, my looks, my productivity, how smart I am. But that's the world that's offered by God. 
And that is what needs to form our imagination because that is what is going to form our responses. We have to soak ourselves in this vision of shalom that is offered here. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. As we begin to transition into communion, into giving our offering, into worship and reflection. Y'all, this is not easy. Don't don't hear me say that this is easy. It's not. It goes against everything that the world offers and how the world operates. Everything that we've been trained by our experiences to expect and to act. But we are not without hope. And we are not without giving something tangible to do. One of the reasons why the table is the center of our worship experience is because it reflects this idea that God gives without cost. That God sacrifices for us without obligation, without shame. There is no threat in this table. There is no bribe. It is grace. By grace, we receive it. We receive the sacrifice of Jesus that gathers us together as one body and then sends us out into the world as God's representatives. We take the body and the blood to proclaim Christ crucified, Christ died, Christ risen and living. We share in the offering because it demonstrates that everyone here has something to give and no one here is without need. And so we share our resources. We worship because that is the right and good response to the word which has been given to us. And we reflect because we need to consider this, to meditate on it, to question it, to ask it, and to make it our own, not just something that we accept because I said it. Thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for taking that practical, tangible step to soak yourself in the imagination of Scripture and to come and to freely receive of what Jesus has to offer us today. Thank you. Thank you.